Well, we're going to finish our series on Colossians today. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. But if you have your Bibles, you want to keep them open. I'm just going to read to 4, 6. I am going to talk about the end of the book as well. All right? So. And I'm actually going to begin with verse 17. You know, the divisions in the Bible are kind of arbitrary. And uh, sometimes you even get these headings that are interpretive. Um, and it's interesting where we make that, where we divide that line. Again, the, the early New Testament didn't have chapters, didn't have verses. It was just they, they were letters. And so those are kind of put in later by editors. Or in my Bible, it's just whoever put this edition together, put the divisions. So rather than, and rather than begin with verse 18, I want to begin with verse 17. Right? Listen to the word of God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives rather than treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything not only while being watched in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whenever your task, whatever your task is, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters. Since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ, for which I am prison, so that I may reveal it clearly, as I should. Conduct yourselves wisely, use wisdom towards outsiders. Make the most of the time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. May God bless the hearing and reading of the Holy Word. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, recently I saw a post, and the person said something like this. Uh, when I read the New Testament and then I look at Christianity, I see no similarities whatsoever. Kind of a particular critique, right? You know, there's different versions of it. Uh, you know, follow, don't be religious, follow Jesus. Look at Christ, not the church. Uh, Christianity has nothing to do with what the New Testament talks about or what Jesus was about. Um, I almost posted a reply, but I did not. I used restraint. Okay, I'm trying. I'm trying to I'm a better person. Working. All right. Thanks, people. <laughs> With God's help, right? I don't, don't give me a grade. Don't ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know how I'm doing from you all. All right. Uh, maybe God will give me some peace, but uh, I'm trying. But my response to this person was, I was going to say, really? Because sometimes the only thing that gives me hope in a day is how much we actually are like 
the people in the Bible. I have the exact opposite experience. When I look at the Bible, I think, all right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're pretty much hanging in there just like those who came before us. Now, the Old Testament, obviously, is full of really broken people and horrendous things that the people of God did. And it really is a story of failure and forgiveness. It really is a, it's, it's God's love story to his people, right? But it's a broken love story. And there's some very harsh languages. There's some very tragic things that happen. And so when we look at the Hebrew scriptures, we can see lots of patterns, right? But there's a tendency for Christians to think, yeah, but now that the New Testament's come, we got it right. Let's stop and think a little bit. All right, let's take Jesus, for example. All right? So Jesus talks to his disciples, right? He teaches them. And half the time, they don't understand what he's saying. And the other part of the time, they ignore what he's saying, right? That feel familiar? And what about when Jesus needs his people the most, right? Well, they either betrayed him, they denied him, or they ran away. Again, this sounds really familiar, right? There's a little bit of Peter in us. There's a little bit of James and John in us. Unfortunately, there's a little bit of Judas in all of us as well. <laughs> I one time heard someone say, if you read the New Testament and identify with Jesus, you're reading it wrong. And then what about the letters, right? <laughs> okay. Well, the Corinthians are too liberal. The Galatians are too legalistic. And in Philippians, perhaps the nicest letter Paul writes, you get to the fourth chapter and you realize that one of the reasons he wrote the chapter is two women in the church can't get along. Now, fortunately, that never happens in our day and age, right? <laughs> okay. So, all right. Second um, Peter tries to explain away Paul at the end. Paul writes things that are hard for us to understand. Maybe the book of James is written as an argument against the Apostle Paul. So even in the New Testament, there are people speaking one to the other. And let's take Apostle Paul, maybe the best of all of us, okay? Maybe the best leader, the most important Christian leader of all time, right? We have our interpretation of Christ, the meaning of Christ's life and death, really all comes through the, the lenses of Paul. Without Paul, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. But even Paul is not always consistent. And it's pretty obvious he wasn't easy to get along with. And yet this, this, is, this is our story. Um, I planted a, uh, a butterfly bush. Now, okay, again, I don't, I'm, I'm like an accidental gardener. Okay, I, you know, how that has happened, I don't even know sometimes how I planted things or why I planted them. But I had this butterfly bush, which I like. Okay, I don't really understand plants, but I planted it. And for most of the summer, there weren't any butterflies. So I thought I got like a, a faulty butterfly bush. I mean, I don't know how you test a butterfly bush. It would seem to me that if you have a butterfly bush, 
butterfly should come. But I didn't have any for the whole year. And then also, you know, there's not as many. So I'm thinking of this is, you know, this is just one example that the environment's collapsing. But, which it is, unfortunately. But the good news is I have butterflies now. Okay? All right, and I, I like watching them. And I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that there are some butterflies out there. Well, yesterday, uh, I looked out there, and there was something weird looking, and it looked like a hummingbird. Now, I have a confession. I, I posted a picture of the hummingbird on my Facebook, and I was all excited. I got a picture of a hummingbird, but someone sent me a note early this morning saying, I hate to burst your bubble, but that was a hummingbird moth. Okay. I'm still going to pretend it's a hummingbird. That's right. But it's actually pretty cool anyway. Okay. A hummingbird, by the way, for years they, didn't, they couldn't figure out how a hummingbird could fly. Right? I mean, aerodynamically, it's, it's, it's not supposed to work. Okay, now, I don't, those of you engineers can help me. But they finally have figured out that how it does it with new technology. So yes, you can explain why a hummingbird can fly. But for years, we, we didn't think a hummingbird should be able to fly, but it does. And the church, with all of its faults, is the body of Christ. Not because we determined that we're the body of Christ, but because Christ has determined we're the body of Christ. And from the beginning, this enterprise that is Christianity, it is the church, has had its problems, has had its compromises. We've never lived up to our ideals. The part of the promise, and, and this text, I think, shows the tension that's in the Christian experience. Even though we don't always live to up to our ideals, even though we sometimes look more like our presenting culture than the kingdom of God, God plants God's seeds within us and within the church that we have always have the opportunity to be better. Not because of our effort, but because the Holy Spirit is present to us. Now, I didn't read this passage, but I want you to, if you have your Bible, open it up to the end of chapter 7. Scott McKnight, who's a wonderful New Testament scholar, has a book out on Romans, and it said, it's called Reading Romans Backwards. And his whole point is that really, if you want to understand Romans, you go to the last chapter of Romans where it talks about all these people and all these relationships. Actually, I think that's probably true of a lot of Paul's works. You know, we, we do treat Paul's writings as Holy Scripture, and they are. But it's good to remember that these were letters written to real places, written to little churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire, just trying to hold on, trying to hang in there. Often surrounded by incredible pressures, and frequently also fighting within themselves. Now, at the end of chapter four of Colossians, we have all these names. For instance, Tychius will tell you all the news about me. Onesimus is on your own way. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Luke, the beloved physician, Justice, Epiphus, Demos. 
thing. All these people. We also find out that give my greetings to Nymphia and the church in her house. Now, each of these, we know some of the stories of these folks, okay? There are backstories, but I want to focus on two particularly interesting, uh, interesting people here. By the way, this is the only way place we know that Luke was a physician. This phrase, Luke, our beloved physician, that's where that idea that Luke was a doctor comes from, from this passage here. But there's two things I want to focus on, and then go back and look what Paul says earlier on. First of all, this figure of Anisimus. If Anisimus sounds familiar to you, there's a whole book of the Bible written because of Anisimus. And that's the book of Philemon, the little book. So in one chapter, Paul writes a letter, a personal letter to Philemon. And Philemon is associated with Colossians. Okay, so there's all kinds of cross-pollination here. Okay, people know each other. Okay, it'd be like, okay, the people from Feast... Yeah, I start mentioning names from Feasterville to you all. Okay, you now start knowing that. There's a relationship between the two churches. Okay. Onesimus was a slave. And he ran away from his master, Philemon. And he ends up in Rome with Paul. And the book of Philemon is Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And the letter is written to kind of cushion <laughs> whatever might happen when Onesimus gets back. Now, in our text, Paul goes into a long discourse about slaves obey your masters. Right? He talks about this. Now, this, this, this text, among others, has a, a horrendous history in Christianity. Okay? Southern slave owners in our country used passages like this one and others to say that God instituted slavery and that it would be against the design of God for slaves to be free. Paul is the same person who writes in Galatians, in Christ there is no slave or free. Now how, <laughs> how do you work out this tension? Matter of fact, he, he goes on in Philemon to say, Onesimus, who was once your slave, but now is your brother. If it seems inconsistent to you, that's because it is. On one hand, Paul thought Christ was coming back at any time. Okay? And therefore, the purpose of the church wasn't to change society, but it was to proclaim Christ so that the world could hear about Christ, right? There's a sense of urgency. Paul's whole life has a sense of urgency. We need to share the good news of Christ. All right? So yes, in Christ there is no slave or free, but you know what? We're not about starting a revolution. Matter of fact, Christianity would have been crushed. It would never survive if the most important thing it was doing was trying to end slavery. 
It took Christians 1,600 years to finally listen to what Paul had to say, that in Christ there is no free or slave. That's a scandalous, actually, 1,600 years. It should not have taken us that long to figure what Paul says out, says here. But it shows us that there's this dynamic within Christianity. The ideal, in Christ there is no slave or free, Paul Onesimus, who was once your slave but now your brother, his intention with masters obey your servants. On the ground it makes sense. Paul is saying, you know what, only God really owns you. But do what you need to do to survive in this world. Because a slave, a master could do anything they wanted to do to a slave. There were some laws that protected slaves, but the authorities usually looked the other way. So there's this tension, right? There's this tension between what it means to be a new creature in Christ, right? And working that out practically. Same is true about the role of women. Paul says in Galatians, just where he says in Christ there is no slave, slave or free, in Christ there is no male or female. Yet, in many ways, he is pretty conventional here for a first century Jewish teacher. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, you can argue that the addition of husbands love your wives is the influence of Christ. I would agree with that. When it comes to the issue of women, even in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, it's my custom not to have women speak in the church. But then he goes on, when women speak in the church, they should cover their heads. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, uh, there are always, there are a lot of different ways to explain that. I've heard all kinds of gymnastics to explain that, both from people who want to keep women out of speaking roles in the church, and also people who fight for full equality. Um, I kind of believe that what do you do about Paul being, you know, how do you explain Paul being inconsistent on this issue? I think it's because Paul was inconsistent on this issue. He was still working it through. Because of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ, he believed in Christ there is no male to female. Okay, that's, that's, that's what's been achieved in heaven. There are not second-class citizens in baptism. When you're baptized into Christ, being a Christian means you are one in Christ. There is no distinction. There are not any better seats in heaven. I don't know how they pull that off. It'll be interesting. <laughs> but you don't have to worry. You're not going to get one of the seats behind the pole. Remember the old vet stadium? <laughs> there, were some, <laughs> there were some seats that you had to, you know, to watch the game. <laughs> there aren't any seats like that now. I don't think there are seats in heaven, but that's another story. Okay. Uh, you, but you get what I'm trying to say. So, Paul, who is speaking in many ways very conventionally about, I mean, in the uh, Roman world, basically, if you were a woman, now this changed at the end of the first century, but that's not really part of our story here. But if you were a woman, you were either your father's daughter or your husband's wife. The household 
which included servants and slaves, were all under the master of the house, which was, you know, a male. Yet, <laughs> Paul says, thank, he wanted to particularly point out um, that Nymphia and the church at her house. In other words, Nymphia may have not <laughs> been an, uh, an apostle, but the church didn't exist without her house. In those days, there weren't separate buildings. So the more affluent, usually who had the bigger houses, would host the churches. So Nymphia is an unofficial leader of the church because she's letting one of the congregations live in her house or meet in her house. So even on this issue of women, Paul is constantly talking about co-workers, and he mentions women. We know there were women prophets in the first century in the early church. Some groups even had women as, as their pastors or bishops. So, part of this wonderful tension, and sometimes it's an awful tension, really, right, of what we are in Christ what we will be, right? But what we are in our lives. Now, I was doing premarital counseling um, yesterday, these are these Skype, a couple of them doing in September. And I've known her ever since she was four. Okay. Yeah, I know. I, I started pastoring when I was eight. Anyway. <laughs> Those are, those are strange moments, aren't they, when you're doing premarital counseling to a little kid you used to throw around in the pool. But, uh, yeah. Anyway. And one of the things that was that's always really interesting is how in couples, the weaknesses, the places they fight about are also things that, that are their strengths, right? Okay. It's somehow that love takes often what is a weakness, but can see the other side of it, which is a strength. I don't know if it's a weakness or reality, but the Christian church is always going to be a compromised group of people because, all right, what are we? We're sinners, right? And we're sinners organized. So organized sinners means that we're capable of doing more things wrong, right? <laughs> because because we've organized, we're like we're like we've unionized. We're we're sinners. We're the you know, the, the honor order of union sinners, right? <laughs> okay. okay. So there's a sense where when the church behaves badly, when Christians fall short, we're just kind of being the shadow side of who we are, right? That's who we are. The fact that sometimes we let our politics override our Christian convictions, we let, sometimes we let our prejudices speak louder to us than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not right. And really bad things happen because of that, but it's understandable, right? We all have our own blind spots. We all live in our own silence. But the promise of this text is even while they're figuring this out, these are the early years of the Christian church, the social realities that they lived in did not squelch the power of what could be. 
That because they talked about it, because they believed it, because they have glimpses of it, you and I can grow into it. I, I love Paul tells us to be wise. Conduct yourself wisely towards outsiders. Boy, isn't that a good word for the church today? Think about how you look to the outside world. Are you a mirror? Or are you a light? Do you reflect what's bad and wrong out there? Or do you give them a glimpse of what Christ is about? I just bought a book, um, and it's one of my things I'm going to be reading while I'm away. It's called River of Fire. It's by Sister Helen um, is it, uh, Prejean. Prejean? Yeah, um, forgive my uh, French. You probably don't, maybe not necessarily remember her name, but you will remember her first book because it was a movie, Dead Man Walking. And Susan Sarandon won an Academy Award for playing her. Um, Sister Helen became a nun before Vatican II. Okay, and she said, I became a nun because I wanted to have a mystical encounter with God. And that's really what she started out to do, right? to devote her life to prayer. But in the course of her, of her life, she talks about Vatican II, the impact of Vatican II in her life. She became involved in working with the poor. And she was particularly working with a uh, inner city uh, work in New Orleans. She has this, she's, she's Cajun. She has this wonderful uh, Louisiana accent. And in the context of working with the poorest of the poor in New Orleans and Louisiana, she began befriending people on death row. And she began her ministry of just walking with men who were about to be executed. And through that befriending and ministering to these dead men walking, she became an outspoken um, activist against the death penalty. I heard her interviewed on the radio. Just, just a lovely Christian, a really joyful person. Uh, this book, she's, she's 80. And both her parents and her sister died at 81. So she says, I'm kind of in my last, uh, I don't know how much time I have left. But a couple years ago, she met the Pope. And she's a big fan of this Pope. And, and she handed the Pope a letter. And in the book, uh, the letter is reproduced. And it starts out by just, you know, thanking him and telling him all the things that she uh, appreciates about him. But then she says this. The great sin of our church is that we fail to allow women to sit at the table of Christ as God intended. And because, she said, only men are bishops, only men are priests, only men are making the decisions. You miss the benefit of the wisdom that women can bring. She says, I'm invited to preach in Protestant churches all the time. She said, in my own church, I'm not even allowed to read the gospel. And then she goes on to say that Christ has set us free. And in our baptism, the Holy Spirit has made us one. She says, my prayer for you is that you will continue to lead us so that we can live out the fullness 
of the promise of our baptism. What I particularly appreciate about her is that her critique is out of love. And it's out of hope as well. It's like, you know, for 1900 to 2000 years, we've been getting this wrong from the Roman Catholic perspective. But because of God's Holy Spirit with us, we can get better. And we can do this right. Now, you may agree or disagree with it. Well, we, we all, I mean, we agree about when you can do it. We affirm that. But I think what's powerful is this idea. It's not dwelling merely on what's wrong, okay? But the promise of what can be right. Isn't that the hope in our lives, really? Isn't that the hope in our relationships? Isn't that the hope in our church? Not to merely say, oh, church is ruined, Christianity is a mess. Yes, it is. But it always has been. And yes, you and I are never what we're supposed to be. But, but we are the children of God. We have been baptized into Jesus. We belong to him. We can look more now like we will look in heaven. The church can get things right that it's been wrong about. We can come together around wisdom. Now, age doesn't necessarily make you wise, right? Okay. But you don't get to be wise when you're young. Dr. Dodges Allen, blessed memory, said one time, do you know why you have to be old to be wise or older? This is because you have to make horrible mistakes in your life and live long enough to deal with the consequences. Okay. <laughs> right. okay. The church has lived a long time. It has made horrendous mistakes. And we have and are continuing to live with the consequences. But we can be wise. We can be set free. We can be healed. We can be instruments of healing. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God, the Father through Him. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Lord of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of Christ, and the life everlasting. Amen.
You may be seated and let's continue our worship by giving to God our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings. <laughs> 